So you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. And last night as I was going over my sermon, uh, I was planning on doing the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Christ, or sorry, the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist and the announcement of the birth of Christ uh, as one sermon. But as I was going through, uh, I realized that there is just so much uh, in both of these passages that uh, I didn't feel right cramming them into one. And so I split them up at 9.30 last night uh, into two sermons, uh, and this morning we're going to be looking at, so I had messaged, I'm going to be talking about the virgin birth uh, in the signal group, but I'm, I'm not going to be uh, this morning. We're just going to be talking about the birth of John the Baptist. Now perhaps some of you here are, are old enough uh, to remember May of 1980, a volcano, Mount St. Helens, located within the state of Washington, was beginning to murmur and, and make these sounds. However, nearby campers, residents that lived uh, decently close to the mountain, and researchers who were, who were working there weren't too concerned because this volcano had laid silent for over 100 years. But then on May 18th, an earthquake hit the region of southwestern uh, Washington, and it was an earthquake of a magnitude of 5.1, and it resulted in the whole northern flank of the mountain collapsing within 10 seconds. And this created the biggest landslide that has ever been recorded in history. And then Mount St. Helens now was able to release the magma that was inside an energy equivalent to 1,500 Hiroshima atom bombs. And the gas and the ash and the rocks from the explosions powered through the surrounding countryside at 400 miles per hour, wiping out forests within seconds. When all, when all was said and done, 210 square miles of wilderness was completely stripped and laid bare, and all life was extinguished. Ultimately, 57 people died that day. See, Mount St. Helens had laid silent for over a century, but finally it broke its silence and erupted, becoming the most devastating and destructive volcanic eruption in North American history. Now I want you to rewind 2,000 years ago to 4 BC, and we have a similar story. But it's not about a volcano that has laid silent for years. It's about the maker of volcanoes and mountains, the Lord God himself. See, the Old Testament finishes with the book of Malachi, which we read earlier. And Malachi was written around 430 BC, but since then, for 400 years, God had been silent. He had not sent a prophet or a king to the people of Israel. And questions of whether God was done with Israel ran through the minds of the people. And they had been ruled and conquered first by the Persians, then by the Greeks, and now they were under the rule and oppression of the Romans. And so the question was in their minds, where is their God? Has he given up on us? Has he forgotten about us? Has he taken back the promises that he made that he would send a Messiah to come and redeem us? They'd been sitting there, waiting, living in darkness. But then, 
We read in John chapter 1, Now the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See, God had not forgotten Israel. He was waiting, waiting for the proper time to reveal His Son, who would come, as I read there in in Malachi 4, who would come as the Son of Righteousness and eclipse the darkness of sin and slavery to death. See, the time had come for God's great plans that He had laid in eternity past to now be fulfilled. And we see this, we see the very start of this with our passage this morning. So if you're not there, we're looking at Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 25. And listen as I read God's word. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and, he, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was, able, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. But when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among his people. This is the word of the Lord. I've titled this sermon, 
the silence awakened. And as I mentioned earlier, God had not sent a prophet to Israel in over 400 years. But now in God's providence, the time has come for him to speak. And the question that we should all be asking, we should all be wondering, is why? And why is God now speaking? What does he have to tell us? And what must our response be? And so we're going to look at three points this morning. First, God's silence broken. Second, God's promised prophet. And then third, our response examined. And so let's look at the first point. God's silence is broken. So we see from the Bible that God is a God who speaks. And God doesn't just wind up the, wor- the world like one of those windy toys and let it run on its own without interacting at all. No, God directly interacts with his world. And he does so through, uh, we look at the, the history of Israel, he often does so through speaking through these prophets who are carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter says that in his epistle, that God spoke through the prophets who were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And we hear that common phrase throughout the Old Testament, thus saith the Lord. See, God is interacting with his world. He's speaking to his people. He is is directly with them. But then we also see in the Bible that there are times when God withdraws his presence from his people. Ezekiel 10, Ezekiel gets this vision from the Lord. And in this vision, what he sees is uh, the glory of God filling the temple. And it's this majestic sight that he sees. And then uh, by the end of the vision, uh, all of a sudden, the glory of God leaves the temple. He departs from his dwelling place. And, it's all to, and, and then the very next chapter in Ezekiel then talks about the judgment and the destruction of Jerusalem. And so God is departing from his people because of their sin and disobedience. And then interestingly, when we look at the building of the second temple, when when they return from exile back to the land, they build this temple for God, but there's no, no record anywhere in the Bible of the glory of God coming and filling the temple once again. When Solomon builds his temple, you have this grand display where God's glory comes and fills and it's very clear that he is with and among his people. But in the building of the the second temple, that's not the case. And that's because this period that we have between the last prophets and then finally the coming of John the Baptist is a period of silence. But all of that changes in verse 5 here of our passage. It says, in the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah. And so here he's laying the, the setting for what is about to happen. Now within that small statement, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there's lots being said. And Peter's a historian. He's not, so he's, he's giving a chronological marker for us, but he's also a theologian. And he's, he's saying more to us uh, than just, you know, this was the time that this happened. You see, the days of, of Herod were really difficult and dark days for the people of Israel. You know, Herod himself was not chosen by the people, not chosen by God to be the king of Israel. He was placed there by the Romans. 
And so they regarded him as this outsider and not the true king of Israel. And on top of that, he was, he was friendly to the Romans and he was friendly to uh, this society that the Greeks had built, this Hellenistic society, and was trying to lead the Jews away from their, their practices and following God's word. And so the people were really feeling the, the pressure of being under Herod and under Roman uh, opposition. And so they really had this kind of hopeless mindset. You know, this was a hopeless time. They had been conquered by nation after nation after nation, and now they were sitting under perhaps the most, military, the most militarily powerful nation ever to exist, the Roman Empire. And so it's into this context that God now speaks. And he, and he speaks in the very place that we would expect him to speak. You know, if God was going to return, if God was going to uh, come with a message, where would we expect him to speak? On the dwelling place of God, the temple of God, in the city of God, Jerusalem. And here is where he comes. And we meet our first characters of Luke's story, Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. And in verse 6, he describes the two of them. He says, And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all of the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And so they, they are described here as people who are righteous before God. Now, that doesn't mean that they had never sinned. And the Bible is very clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But what this does mean is that they were people who were truly pursuing God. You know, these were people who were walking according to his ways. And when they failed, they continued to walk according to his ways, going and offering sacrifices so that they could be uh, temporarily forgiven for their sins. These were, were true followers of God. But the reason that their righteousness uh, is mentioned is not so that we would um, look upon them with praise and, and honor them as these uh, super righteous people, but it's because of what Luke says in the very next verse. You know, look at verse 7. He says, But, so they were righteous, but they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, in the Bible, there's this theme. Uh, that we see running throughout uh, Scripture of these, of these barren women, of women who are unable to have children. If you think back uh, to Sarah, Sarah is barren. If you think back to Rebecca, Rebecca is. And Rachel and, and, and Samson's mother and, and Hannah, the mother of Samuel. And in all of these cases, the, the surprising thing is that they're all barren even though they're relatively righteous. That kind of goes against what we would think. In, in Deuteronomy 28, when God lays out the curses for covenant disobedience, one of the curses is that women will be barren. And so disobedience can lead to barrenness. But in all of these cases, including Elizabeth, we've just been told that she is, she is righteous before the Lord. And so we wonder why why are these women barren? Well, it's interesting that uh, in every case where there is a, a barren woman, eventually their barrenness is removed by God 
and they go on to do, to do what? To have a child that ends up doing great things for the glory of the Lord. See, Sarah, who does she give birth to? To Isaac, the promised seed of Abraham that they have waited for. Rebecca gives birth to Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Rachel gives birth to Joseph, who saves the nation from famine. And Hannah gives birth to Samuel, the last and the greatest judge. And so Luke, by by telling us that Elizabeth is bearing, he wants us to be picking up on this theme. You know, that a great child who is going to glorify God will come from Elizabeth. And we see this announced in the next few verses. Look at verse 8 to 13. So we go back now to Zechariah and it says, Now while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel of the Lord said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will, will bear a son and you will call him John. Now the Old Testament priestly system, how it worked was that uh, the, the priests weren't all there all at the same time. They didn't all live in Jerusalem, continually serving in the temple, but it was divided up into these 24 divisions. And we see here that Zechariah is part of the division of Abijah, and then each of these 24 divisions would come and they would uh, serve uh, a one-week uh, service in the temple. And then they would do that twice a year. And then they would also come back for the feasts and the festivals to serve. We see that it is Zechariah's, work, Zechariah's job now to be serving uh, in, in the temple. And he goes in to offer incense to the Lord. So we read in Exodus 35 that uh, twice a day, in the morning before the sacrifices were to occur, and, and in the afternoon to evening, uh, after the sacrifices had finished, it was, a, it was the priest's responsibility to go in and to offer up incense to the Lord. And it was a, a big deal if you got to do this. I mean, not every priest had the opportunity. If you think about it, there were hundreds of, of priests serving in each division. And if you're only serving two weeks out of the year and you only go in twice a day, uh, there's only 14 days, uh, 14 priests that, that actually get the chance in each division to go in to the holy place. And now that is where the incense was offered in what is called in the temple the holy place. So in the temple you have different regions where certain people are allowed to enter into and there was something called the holy place that priests were able to enter into. And now the, the reason the holy place was special was because it was one, one step removed from the holy of holies, the most holy place. And we know that that is the place where God himself dwells and no one is allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies except for one person. And that is the high priest who is allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies once a year to make an offering to God for the, for, for the atonement of the people's sins. 
And so this was a big deal. You were standing in the most holy place offering incense to God, separated from him by only a curtain. In order to pick someone, it says that they cast lots to see who would enter in to do this job. And in God's providence, the lot falls on Zechariah. And I can just picture here how excited Zechariah is. And he's probably like thinking, wow, I can't wait to go home and tell Elizabeth what happened. We know the rest of the story that he can't go home and tell Elizabeth what happens because uh, God ends up punishing him for his unbelief. But when he enters in and begins making his offering to the Lord, he soon realizes that he's not alone. And an angel appears uh, at the right side of the altar, it says. And Zechariah does what most people in the Bible do when they encounter angels. You know, we hear a lot of these stories of, of people going, dying and going to heaven or having these visions of, of angels. And it's this great time where, you know, the angel is, is pushing them on a swing set or something like that. But every time in the Bible, people are encountering angels, they're afraid unless the angel has taken on some, some uh, human form where they can't recognize the angel. He goes from being super excited for what he's doing to being super scared in a moment. Now, in pop culture, we kind of have these images of angels uh, as these kind of like half-robed, chubby children flying around with wings and halos and trumpets. But I don't know where that comes from. Because in the Bible, angels are these extravagant, fearful creatures. And that's why Zechariah is afraid. He's also afraid because he is standing here in the temple of God and he's, he's read the scriptures, he's seen uh, that if you mess up on some of this stuff, if you're, if you're approaching offering to God in a lackadaisical manner, that God can come and judge you for that. He can come and even strike you dead if you don't approach him properly. And so Zechariah is probably wondering here, like, am I about to go? Am I about to, to be out of this place? Have I done something wrong? But then Gabriel assures him that he's not to be afraid. He's not there to bring fear, but rather he's there to bring a message from the Lord. You know, he's here to announce that God is remaining silent no longer. That the time is now right for God to redeem his people from their sin. See, after 400 years, God now speaks. And what I find interesting is that the last time, if you look through the Bible, the last time that God waited 400 years to interact and be with his people was when they were slaves in the land of Egypt. In Genesis 15, verse 13, when God is talking to Abraham, he says, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for how long? 400 years. The people of Israel were slaves in Egypt without a prophet 400 years. But then God raised up a deliverer and redeemed his people from their slavery. And well, the same is true here. The people have been, been without a prophet for 400 years, but now God is raising up a deliverer who will redeem his people not just from earthly, physical slavery, but who will redeem them from slavery to sin and death. And so praise God 
that he has broken his silence. Praise God that he is now beginning to accomplish that which he had foretold in the Garden of Eden. That someone is going to come who is going to crush the head of the serpent, a seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's the first point, that God has spoken. Now the second point is God's promised prophet. God's promised prophet. And here we're introduced to none other than John the Baptist. Look at verses 13 to 17. It says, And you will bear a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have great, you have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and will go before him, and, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now John is an interesting character in, in the Gospels. And we'll learn more about John as we study through Luke's Gospel. But for now, I want to I just give us four quick things uh, that we can learn about the person and ministry of John. First, our passage tells us that John will be great. So verse 15 says that he will be great before the Lord. And we also see that he's specifically named by God. Now, anytime a child is named by God in the Bible, they are, they are special and do great things. So it means that they're going to have some part to play in God's covenantal plan that he is, he is laying out. And the name John, does anybody know what it means? It means God is gracious. And this is a very fitting name for the one who is to come and prepare the people for the one who's going to give his life in the greatest display of grace the world has ever seen. And even Jesus himself acknowledges the greatness of John. He says in Matthew 11, Truly I tell you, among those born of woman, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. So that's the first thing. We see that John is a great man who is going to do great things for the glory of the Lord. Second, we see that John will be a Nazarite. A Nazarite. Verse 15 says, he must not drink wine or strong drink. Now this is part of the Nazarite vow that we see in Numbers 6. And with this vow, someone would either pledge themselves for a long time or for a short period of time where they would not uh, drink uh, any wine or any strong drink and, and oftentimes they would cut or they wouldn't cut their hair as they were uh, fulfilling this vow. And we see also in Scripture that sometimes parents will dedicate their children uh, for this purpose, to be a Nazarite. Uh, the, uh, another person that we, we see in the Bible who is a Nazarite is Samuel. Now, if you remember, I'd already mentioned that there's some similarities between Elizabeth and Hannah, who is Samuel's mother, and that they're, they're both barren women, but the Lord opens their womb and they conceive a child. But now we see that there are some similarities between their children, John and Samuel. See, both were born to a barren woman and both were dedicated to the service of the Lord as Nazarites. Now, why is this important? Well, if you remember, what was Samuel's job 
in the Old Testament. Samuel's job was to prepare the people for the coming of their king, the coming of their true king, King David. And now John is playing the same role here in that he is preparing the people to welcome the true and final king, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, John, he's, he's functioning here as a type of Samuel. He's pointing to an even greater king than David. And so that's the second thing. John is a Nazarite. The third thing is that John will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, interestingly, the passage here says that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Now, that's not a a common phenomenon that we have recorded elsewhere in Scripture, and that's because John, he's being set apart as someone who is different. That's why Luke uses the word even. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, that makes sense. But he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb because this is not a normal thing. But as we'll see, as we continue through the book of Luke and as he especially highlights in the book of Acts, is that with the coming of Christ, you know, many things are not normal anymore. The Holy Spirit really becomes active in a new way that we have never seen before the establishment of the new covenant. And it begins with the filling of John with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. And so that's the third thing. And then fourthly, John will come in the spirit of Elijah. Here Luke is referencing Malachi 4, which we read earlier this morning. That in the last days, God is going to, before the last days, God is going to send Elijah. And Luke quotes those words that Malachi says where he's going to turn fathers to their children. And Luke now applies this to John when he says, uh, he will come to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And so we see that John is this Elijah that has been promised. Now, what does it mean that John is Elijah? And what does it mean that he's coming in the spirit and power of Elijah? Well, it means that he comes as a a prophet like Elijah who goes to a, a wicked and evil generation in order to call them back to God and to repentance. It says in verse 16 that he will turn the, heart, turn the hearts of many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And so this is really what repentance is. Now, repentance is, is turning your heart back to God. You see, when we sin, when we repent, what we do is we, we turn back our affections, our desires, and our actions to the Lord. And so just like Elijah, John's role was to bring this repentance, to bring people to a recognition of their sin, and then to point them to the one who can save them from their sin. John's role was to prepare the people for a new era of God's working and a new formation of God's people through Christ. A way you can picture it is like this. When I worked for a biotech company, uh, we had uh, the premier of Ontario, Doug Ford, who was planning to come and visit our company. We made like uh, all of these um, COVID-related things and it was was all the, the chat of the day. And so the premier decided he was going to come 
and visit our company. But before he would come, what he did was he sent others ahead of him. He sent some people to come and prepare us as a company for his arrival. They came and told us what he was planning to do, his, his timeline. Uh, they told us what was required of us if we were going to host their premiere. And then I remember spending the rest of the week cleaning up the lab, polishing up the machines, throwing my lab coat in the laundry and getting ready everything that needed to be ready for the coming of the premiere. And this is what John was doing. He was getting people ready so that they could receive the Messiah who was coming. And how they were to get ready was not by cleaning themselves up, but by recognizing that they couldn't clean themselves up and by turning to the Lord in humble repentance and saying, Lord, I am a sinner. Prepare me to receive your grace. And I think that's a a fair question that we can reflect on ourselves. Are you prepared to receive the grace of God through repentance? The majority of us here would say that we are Christians. But as we see here in this passage, that we can only receive Christ as Savior, we can only receive the grace of God if we are going to turn our hearts to God in repentance. We can't say, I want Christ as my Savior without submitting to Him as our Lord. And you can't say, I want to to follow Jesus, but I want to follow Him my own way and according to my own rules. Christ being Lord of your life means that He is the one who is now in charge of your life. You aren't free. As a Christian, you are not free to live however you want. But you are brought under the rule and reign of Jesus as your king. And so true discipleship involves repentance. And then we are prepared to receive Christ now as our Savior, our Lord, and our King. And so ask yourself, are you prepared to receive Christ? Or are you following Christ without any desire to be turning from your sin? And so that is, that is John for us. John is God's promised prophet. God is going to speak again through John to prepare the people for an even greater revelation of himself. And now the third and final point, we're going to be looking at the response to God's silence. Uh, to, to God's silence being broken. And we're going to see two different responses here. First, we see the response of Zechariah. Look at verse 18 to 23. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will now be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will, which will be fulfilled in their time. You see, Zechariah is just told this amazing message you know, that he is going to have a son in his old age. And his response is, God, can you show me a sign? You know, he says, how, how shall I know this? 
what, why should I believe what you have to say? Now, even though he is a priest of God who knows the scriptures, even though he knows the, the history and the character and the attributes of God, even though he can clearly see right in front of him that there is a messenger of God standing before him, yet he still asks for a sign. And we're told in verse 20 that he asked for a sign out of unbelief. Now, I think there's also some application for us here. Are you a person who needs a sign from God in order to believe his promises? Are you a person who needs something physical, something tangible before you will truly believe what God has to say for you? You know, in the passage we're looking at next week, Gabriel is going to say to Mary, to Mary that nothing is impossible with God. Well, do you actually believe that? I mean, do you believe that God can do the miraculous? Do you believe that God can do what, humanly speaking, is impossible? You know, Zechariah, I'm sure he would say that he believes that. You know, God is all-powerful. God can do anything. But when it came to the time where God was going to do something miraculous, he didn't believe that God could do it. He was walking by sight and not by faith. And I think we can be like Zechariah a lot of the times. We can say, oh yes, God is all-powerful. God can do anything. God can change this hard heart. God can, can heal you know, this sick person. But do our prayers actually reveal that? See, if we want to see the state of, of what we believe, the state of where we are with the Lord, the place we can look to is our prayers. You know, do our prayers reveal that we actually believe God can do great things. I mean, do you pray big prayers? And I'm not talking about long prayers in terms of time. I mean prayers that require the work of God. Prayers that you could point to and say, clearly God must have done it because there's no other way that it could happen. Prayers that require the supernatural action of God. Now, there's no guarantee that God is going to answer these prayers in the affirmatives. When we pray for God to change someone's hard heart, it's not a guarantee that God is going to do that. When we pray for someone who is sick to be healed, it's not a, a guarantee that God is going to do that. But what it does show us is that the genuine praying of these prayers reveal how much we actually believe that God is able to do the impossible. And so I'd encourage you, as you're, as you're praying, if you're not praying, Start praying, and then as you're praying, think. Maybe you write it down. What am I actually praying for? You know, what are, my, what are my prayers before the Lord for? Are they things that require faith? Or are they just things that, uh, you know, I, I pray for because I, I uh, got a, a text message in, in a group? I mean, do you actually believe that God can do the impossible? Zechariah didn't. He needed a sign. And God, in his divine sense of humor, he gives Zechariah a sign. He says, okay, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. Bam! You're going to be mute until your son is born. And really what this shows us is that unbelief or underestimating God is a serious thing. We might think, I don't believe God can, can do everything. 
It's not that serious of a thing. Well, it is serious. And Zechariah is made mute. Jesus himself says, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. And so do you need a, a sign from God to trust him? Or to trust his word? Or to trust his power? Or is the fact that he has said these things enough for you? And we see, though, that God is gracious even in Zechariah's unbelief. He does not cast Zechariah and Elizabeth aside and say, okay, I'm going to use someone who is going to not ask for a sign. Instead, he still blesses them with a child. And look at now the second response. That was the first response, Zechariah. Now let's look at the second response of Elizabeth. Verse 24 says, After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. See, Elizabeth sees what God has done as it truly is, the grace of God to them. I read from the ESV, but I like the way that the NIV translates it. It says that the Lord has done this for me. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. You know, Elizabeth felt ashamed because she couldn't bear a child. And yet the Lord is gracious to her and she responds as we should with thanksgiving. We also see that in Elizabeth's response, we get a hint of what God, of what God's speaking, God's breaking of his silence is really about. You see, God comes and shows her favor and removes her reproach and shame, but this is just a foreshadowing of what God will ultimately do through sending Christ. Now, not only has God removed her shame of barrenness, but in Christ, God does far more. He removes our shame and sin through the blood of Christ. And this is really what this whole passage is about, what it's pointing to. Now, I asked the question earlier, why God has spoken after all of these years? And the answer is, because he is now going to deal with the problem that has been plaguing all of humanity ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, there was a major consequence. They were separated from the presence of God and they were, they were covered in shame. You know, that's why after they sin, it says their eyes are opened and they try to hide themselves and to make for themselves a covering to cover their shame, but it doesn't work. And so what God does in his grace is he makes for them a covering by sacrificing an animal and then covers up their nakedness and shame. But we know that that is only a temporary covering. It never truly dealt with their sin and their shame. But now, in Christ, the temporary coverings are all cast aside and we have an eternal covering of our sin and shame. Christ comes and he gives us a robe that is pure and white and covered in his righteousness, making us clean and washing away all of our guilt and shame for those who believe in him. See, God has 
spoken. And God has spoken to us not a word of judgment or wrath, but a word of grace and a word of mercy for all who come to him in repentance and faith. Let's pray. Dear Lord, God, we see that you have come and you have revealed yourself to us. And Lord, you've not just revealed yourself in words, but you have revealed yourself in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has come and who has broken into the darkness that we once walked in and has now brought light. And this light has eclipsed and overcome the darkness. And through Christ, Lord, we can enter into this light and we can become in him the light of the world. And so I pray, Lord, that we would respond as Elizabeth, that we would be people who rejoice in the grace of our Lord, that we would be like the wise men, who it says, rejoiced exceedingly with great joy when they saw the star. Lord, we have seen the bright and morning star, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now help us to be a people who love, who rejoice, and who follow Christ with all of our hearts. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.